1: Business leaders and academics that write thought provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 105th show. Today, our guest is Liz Wiseman, author of Impact Players. Liz, welcome.
0: It's good to be here. Uh,
1: And uh, your book was fabulous. Uh, I um, couldn't put it down. And I thought, and as I was mentioning to you before the show started, I was at a conference yesterday where the guy was literally quoting all everything from your book. So I told him, you've got to get this book because it's perfect. He was talking about his son and how he was telling his son that you've got to make yourself useful to the people in your organization. And that's how people build trust. So we're going to talk about that. So let's start off with you telling us about your professional background.
0: Oh, OK. Well, I am a researcher. I'm a management researcher. I research, I write, kind of like my work cycle is research, write, teach, repeat. That's kind of what I do. And I came to management research from a fairly, I guess, long or substantial career in corporate management. So I teach management, but um, early in my career, I was just out there managing and leading. And I do a lot of executive coaching. And I think as a researcher... I'm different because I don't come out of that academic path as much as I've come out of this, this, this practicum of having to do the hard work of management and leadership. And I think, um, I, you know, I'm fairly precise in my research, but I think what it's really helped me do is be empathetic in my research. Like I know how hard it is to be a good leader. But you worked at Oracle, am I correct? I did, yeah. I joined Oracle right out of business school. And at the time, I thought I was joining this young, young, growing, small, maverick software company. And of course, it went on to become this behemoth. And I was there during the growth years and the years we were gobbling up talent. And it was actually that experience of being part of this, like, juggernaut of a company and sort of trying to survive and thrive in those growth years and working around on a bunch of amazing.
1: Uh, How big was the company when you joined them?
0: Oh, we were about 2,000 people at the time. So we weren't a tiny, we weren't a startup, but we were still very, very early in the adolescence. I mean, what is it, Oracle today? Over 100,000 people. Right. And I don't even know what the the revenue is, uh, but, you know, when I left, we were probably about a 35, $40 billion company. Wow. Wow. I can't remember when we hit a billion, you know, it was a big deal. So, and, and before
1: I ask you about why you wrote this book, what did you learn from Larry Ellison about leadership?
0: Oh. Where, okay, so where should we start when I actually, um, early on in my days at Oracle, I was in charge of building a management training program for the company. So I thought, well, let me start with Larry. And, and I very vividly remember Larry's reaction. He's like, oh, if you want to study, like a good leader, good leadership, don't study, like, don't come talk to me. I'm terrible at this. But actually, Larry is an amazing leader. And one of the things I appreciate about Larry is like, what you see is what you get. He doesn't always, he's not a puppet CEO who says the things everyone wants to hear, but what he says, you can kind of take to the bank and and cash. And we used to always say about Larry, Larry's almost never wrong about something, but he gets the timing wrong. So he's, you know, Larry's visionary. He would... He would say, like, this is what the world is going to um, be like. But he was usually a few years off. You know, uh, too far ahead. he was too far ahead, but he was always directionally right. And, you know, Larry helped me really understand that the this is going to sound a little bit strange, but the hypocrisy that's inevitable in visionary capable leaders, because they're living in this world yet to be. And everyone else is living in this world that is. And the job as a leader is to straddle these two worlds. Like, yeah, here's how we, the product works today. But here's where we're going. Here's where it's going to. Right. You know, they they, they, they skate to where the puck is heading. Yes. And some people say, wow, this the seems delusional. But I think a great leader has to be able to straddle the future and reality. And sometimes they look a little crazy to other people.
1: And that's how Steve Jobs was. And that's how Elon Musk is. I mean, most all these guys are, you know, talking about things that are going to happen in the future. And then everybody is catching up to them. And obviously, Larry Ellison must be a pretty great leader because he's been in control of that company, what, 30 years?
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Let me me share. um, This is reminding me of an exchange I had with Larry. When you say, what did I learn from Larry? I think this is something I learned from Larry the hard way, which is, when you are trying to make radical change, don't take an incremental approach, rebuild. And there was one point where um, I was running education, um, you know, internal training, education for the company. And I think it, we were now expanding to include, include customer training, but Larry saw a very different vision for this. And I saw that too. And Larry said, I think I had like 300 people on my team. And he said, like, Liz, for us to get where we need to be with this, he goes, like, I want you to essentially let go of your entire team. Oh like, my God. <laughs> get rid of like 90% of your team. Oh, and shit. he said, why don't you like basically fire 250 people? Like, I want you to fire 250 people. And I want you to like, take your like 50 strongest people and rebuild you can imagine what I'm thinking when I went home from work that day. I'm like, Larry's lost his mind. And I start to share that with some of the other executives, which is Larry wants me to basically fire this whole organization. And they're like, don't, like, don't let Larry do this. And so I went into my most analytical, most convincing mode, Mark. So what I did is I did all the analysis, like, okay, if we reduce the organization by this size. These are all of the ramifications and the consequences and the costs to do that. And I made this very compelling argument. And I went back and said, like, Larry, I've really thought about this. I've talked to these people. Here's what I think we should do. I think we should like trim the organization by, let me say it was like a hundred or something, but Still keep the of the organization. And, and Larry, I remember vividly, his reaction he's like Liz you've made you've made a very compelling argument and I support you and I left the meeting like boom look yeah. at me you know what convincing Larry that that was the wrong thing to do and I saw this as this victory and then a year later I realized he was absolutely right oh, shit. because what we did is we like you know like you know, hurt the organization, but we didn't really rebuild it. It was all about the loss rather than like, like, I'm not a good pruner. Like you talk to good gardeners, like, no, you don't prune a little bit at the edges. Like if you want new growth, you pair that all the way back down to the, the root, root, and then it will rebloom. And I didn't do it. And I convinced Larry that we shouldn't do it. And six months later, we're sort of slow bleeding. And I'm trying to convince people that, no, we can do this. And it was more everyone's mentality was what they had lost, not what they were rebuilding. I'm like, dang it, Larry was right. He was right.
1: That's what we end up doing in turnaround, is that you don't want um, small cuts because it's dying by a a thousand small cuts. Once you make that leap, you go, okay, we're going to have to wipe out this whole group even though they're counting on it for their mortgages and everything else, because in order to save the rest of the body, we got to cut off the arm and restore it all over again. That's what he ended up doing. And he saw up and he knew you weren't ready for it. And so he went along with it.
0: And you know, I think so much of the world sees Larry as this like kind of ruthless, tough. But what I saw was this kind of compassionate, like almost like the compassion of a father who's wanting to let his daughter- Yes learn for herself. And you know, in in hindsight, I regret it. I very much regret it. I'm like, wow, I wish I would have had the wisdom to do this insane thing that Larry was asking me to do. And to do it with greater faith. To maybe use a strange word in that context. But yeah, that's one of the things that Larry taught me is if you have a big vision and it's radical change, like sometimes you have to do the thing that hurts. 99.9%
1: of people have done what you did because you think about the people you're seeing them face-to-face it's much easier when it's him and he's not seeing them face-to-face and knowing how you're going to turn their lives upside down after they Mm -hmm. feel like they work so hard for you so I'm sure that it ended in your subconscious but now if you were advising another company you would have no problem telling them this is what you got to do I'm sure as you do coach other CEOs and especially based on your experience but when they know the the uh, they know the people and they know their families and they know their kids, it's a whole different ball game uh, than having to do that. So let's go to why you wrote this book.
0: Yeah. I, before we do that, I want to just acknowledge Tong Gill's comment about burn the boats. Yes, like yeah. the, in this case, like the burn the boats is the better strategy. Um, So, why did I write Impact Players? I mean, there's a joke amongst people who read my books that, like, all my books are my post oracle therapy. And, you Mm -hmm. know, in some cases, (laughs) you know, my first book, Multipliers, was very much post oracle therapy. But, you know, I, I wrote this book because I realized all this work I was doing around helping leaders lead in a way that allowed people to contribute their full measure of intelligence and capability. So all of my work really is about how do we harness all the intelligence inside of our organization? It begins with this premise that there's way more intelligence, know-how, capability inside organizations than most managers are using. Like people show up to work full of knowledge and insight and ideas and talent and their aspiration for how much they can contribute tends to be bigger than their job, bigger than what most managers see and what most managers use. And so for the last decade, I've been out there teaching leaders, here's the secret sauce to getting teams to contribute at their fullest. Here's what you need to do as a leader. Impact players looks at what does the contributor need to do to meet you there in that that mission and it really there was kind of a a moment where it became into clarity for me it was a I was it was a teaching moment I'm out there teaching I think I was at Salesforce up in the city in San Francisco and I'm teaching leaders how to be better multipliers and this one guy kind of like raises his hand he's like yeah I get it I want to be a multiplier leader I don't want to be a diminisher but you can't multiply zero and Mark this was this was a shocking moment for me because what Like you know, when you're out there teaching or speaking, and someone says something that kind of stops you in your tracks, I'm like, "You can't multiply zero. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Do you mean that you've got a bunch of dummies, airheads, like working for you? Like that's my first interpretation." And I'm about to. I thought it was a reasonable interpretation. It's like, are you kind of throwing shade at your team members? And I'm about to launch into like you know speech number 37 which is hey you're the people that work for you are smart and capable and it's your job to see that he and then he kind of stops me fortunately from doing that and he explains like yeah as a leader i need to show up with the right mindsets and behavior and practices but so do the people who work for me like they've got to come with this willingness to make themselves useful, as you mentioned, to focus on the right things, to like, yeah, of course, I have to give feedback, but they have to be willing to receive that. Like I have to lead them in new directions, but they have to be willing to make hard changes.
1: They have to be open to it.
0: Yeah, they, they need to be open to it. And so I'm like, oh yeah, there's a big part of this that has to do with the way that we all show up and our expectation, of how big we play. And that's really why I wrote the book. Cause I, cause honestly, I didn't have an answer to, well, what's the contributors
1: like playbook for this look like? So here's a question from the audience. Um, it says, congrats on your book, Liz. What's another blind spot that smacked you on the back of the head during your Oracle run? And then we have a second question after that
0: one. Smacked me. Um, Well, I'm not struggling for like a failure, but like, which one? Well, let me, let me Mm -hmm. share one. This one came from, um, this one came from our CF. Oh, there's so many. Okay. I'll I'll be faster with this. Um, this one came from the CFO. Like we were, I was running the corporate university. We're pumping out content and programs. And, you know, my boss was the CFO, Jeff Henley who held the purse strings for the organization. And at one point he like denied me the budget that I needed to be able to proceed with this. And I thought it was a financial issue, you know, just sort of a classic CFO. And uh, he's like, no Liz, actually it's not a money thing. He's like, we, like the the real um, limiting factor is how fast people can absorb new programs, new ideas. New changes. And that kind of smacked me a little bit. I'm like, wow, I've been pumping out content, assuming that everyone could absorb it as fast as we could produce it. And it really changed my orientation, which is like, kind of like meet people where they are and like more of like this drip feed, just enough learning, new ideas, new programs. And we now live in a world where we're under this deluge of content. But the real limiting factor is how fast can we absorb it? And how do you increase an organizational um, absorptive capacity is I think like the real question. I remember one that was like jarring to me. Um, there's probably more, but I don't know that we wanna go down memory
1: and lane. only if you thought it was significant and you thought the audience can learn something from that. That's always good. Here's one of the things I wanted to know when you were doing uh, your budgets for him and you were saying, here's the programs we're going to do. Did you have to show a return on investment? Like if we teach them this, here's how we can increase profits or here's how we can be more efficient. Was there some kind of metric you had to show him in order to get that budget?
0: Not necessarily, not, not with Jeff, but I came, you know, my undergraduate degree is in finance and so I'm pretty good with numbers and Just the concept of ROI was sort of native to me when I came in. But I will say, I remember one moment where I was going to present to Ray Lane, who was the president of Oracle, and I could see that there was this, you know, need and this thing that he wanted to do. And I went in with a solution, like, here's a program that I think we can go build. It was expensive. It was a major investment, but it addressed this issue he had been Identifying, and so I went in and I just laid out um, kind of the ROI for the whole thing. And I'm like, okay, here's the program, here are all the investments, here's how I think it'll affect this part of our sales, here's how I think it affects revenue downstream to the sales organization. I'm laying it out, and I'm in Ray's office, and his mouth just like drops open. He's kind of slack jawed looking at me, and I'm like, what is this? Like, not a high enough ROI or something? And he's like. I wish everyone would do that. So this one is a little bit of a glory moment, but he's like, what you just did is so compelling and so convincing. And then it backfired on me because he said, you know, Liz, I need you to teach everyone in our sales organization, how to do this, how to go in and, and just do for our clients, what you just did for me. And then he starts talking me into taking like a sales, an executive sales role inside the company. And I'm like, actually, I kind of like my current job. He goes, no, I need you to go run sales for me. <laughs> because well, that was it a was, great
1: compliment. And obviously he was a brilliant guy because he went to my alma mater, West Virginia
0: University. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I had like the utmost, I still do have the utmost respect for Ray. But it was refreshing to him to see someone inside the company willing to lay out, Lay bare all the costs and the impact, and to show him that as a business leader. I, I,
1: before I go to this gentleman's second question, I wonder from working for two brilliant guys like Larry Ellison and Ray Lane, what did you learn about how they think compared to how everybody else thinks? I mean, you already said about Larry Ellison seeing things way in advance, you know, years in advance of when people would actually see it. But did they have a certain mindset? Um, yes. That differentiated them, you know, people like them from other leaders and other people.
0: Yes. And, you know, both of them were extremely data oriented people. Now, it was a database company, it was an information management company. So that maybe isn't surprising, but, you know, I think it was one of the things that was different is that they wanted to see evidence before moving forward with something. And one of the things that I remember was very different about Larry is, I think the the logicians would call it uh, the prima facie assumptions. So I remember once going in and making a case for Larry about why we needed to invest in these certain employee development programs. And I'm making my case and he's not buying it at all. And I'm like, wow, this is really different because everyone else that I would lay this out to would have said, of course, those are things that we need to do. And I remember seeing that I made this assumption that he would start off with investing employee development is good for the business. So now we're just decide where we're gonna make those investments. And Larry wasn't there at all. And I'm like, oh, I made the assumption that we shared like what the logicians would call a prima facie assumption which is an assumption that's so universally established that you don't need to even start there. It's a building block. And Larry didn't believe that necessarily at all. So I'm like, man, I got to go all the way back to like first principles to use Elon Musk's term and, and build it from there. And it, of course, it annoyed me at the time. I'm like, Larry, like why, why is it he believed this thing that everyone else believes? Well, that's how people like him think is they question everything. And I learned to like, okay, no, go back to like the very fundamental building blocks of what do we believe to be true? What do we agree on? And then build the argument from there. And And I think it's- They're able to
1: remove themselves and become great consultants by the fact that they stand off to the side and are not in the mix. And they're able to ask those hard questions and expect people like you to figure it out and execute.
0: Yeah, and you know, this- And I think it's an important leadership capability, back to like one of the things I learned from from Larry, because Larry was frustrating to work for in many ways. But this is the role of the contrarian kind of leader, the innovator, the entrepreneur who just doesn't need to be popular. And I think it's really powerful when leaders aren't capitulating to popular voices trying to placate people. And it reminds me of something I say to my kids is, you know, I feel like as a parent, my job is to help them make good decisions and to make good decisions with them, not to win a popularity contest. Right. Because parents who are out to win a popularity contest, we kind of know what that looks like. Yep. Spoiled children, etc. And and one of the things I say to my kids when I'm trying to make a point is I'm like, you know, it's a really good thing your mom was really popular in high school. And I was, I said, I was really popular in high school. And you know why that's so important for you to know, you know, child number two or three whatever is because I feel no need to be popular right now. Like I, I was popular. I had my moment of popularity. It was great. It's in my past. And right now I'm just going to do the right thing and not feel like I need to count out to popular opinion or what appeases my kids. And Larry Ellison is very much like that as a leader. I think all those guys at that level
1: who've had that kind of success have that same mindset. Here's the second question. What one is a uh, bigger thing you wish you would have done before you left Oracle? So what what do you wish you would have done before you left?
0: Well, something we started that I left before we finished was really moving all of our learning online it was actually something that larry pushed for as well this is somehow turning into a conversation about all the things about larry ellison that i found (laughs) to be both annoying but inspiring (laughs) and larry was one of the very first people early days to say you know what? Let's get rid of classroom training. Let's do it all online. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that's just a Spock-like thing for him to say. Like, there's so much value that comes from in person. But he was an early innovator and thinker. We were actually one of the very first corporate universities to say, "We're going, we're massively moving stuff online." And and the way we did it is to. Say, and he told me, he's like, "I want you to move everything online, everything." And I'm like, Oh man, I hate this guy, you know, is what I'm thinking in the moment because that's a ridiculous thing to do. But what I realized is it was that kind of take you to the outer edge and then get to the reasonable spot. I'm like, okay, let's just reverse our logic rather than thinking, well, what can we move online? What if we moved everything online and then made some exceptions of the things that actually need to be done in person. And that's the logic we went to. And it ended up with some really, really good thinking. It was just hard. It's hard to go through that painful process. I would have liked to have like really seen that through to a, a point of completion.
1: So let's talk about some of the things in your book. What's your I'm definition like of an impact player?
0: Mm. An impact player is, is, kind of like a talented standout contributor that creates enormous value on a team, but also raises the level of play for a team. It makes, the people who make the whole team better.
1: And your training, how has that changed for high potential performers?
0: Oh, well, you know, the, um, you know, I've spent most of my career in corporate learning, corporate and leadership and executive training, and it's radically changed over the last few years. We've talked about, you know, how place and venue of that has changed. But training these days for high performers has changed in that it really, we're on a figure it out yourself model as people are staying inside companies for shorter periods. Companies are like, well, we're not gonna spend the first year, two years training you just to have you then leave. So they're shortening the amount of investment they make in people. And I think we're also seeing The institutions that used to do character-based development, schools, community associations, boys and girls clubs, church organizations, you're seeing kind of a reduction of that. And a lot of the kind of character development, kind of training not happening or now having to happen at corporations when it really should be done much early on in young people's lives. Which is like the, you mentioned this guy who's saying, like, hey, if you wanna be successful, make yourself useful, which is not the message that we're sending to most young people. What we're sending is messages like, if you wanna be successful, promote yourself, put yourself out there, manage your brand, get people to do what you want them to do. Rather than, you know what? If you want to create value and receive value, You need to be of service.
1: Well, we need more of our national leaders to think in those types of terms because they're the role models for younger people. And this goes even for leaders of companies. So what's your process for getting underachievers to fulfill their potential?
0: You know, when I see people who are contributing below their potential, first of all, I remind myself of this truth that I seem to have learned out there studying some of the best leaders in the world, some of the worst leaders in the world, is this truth about contributorship. And that is people all around the world, they show up to work desperately wanting to contribute everything that they have. See, you know, we often think, oh, that person's a slacker. They're not getting a lot done. They don't want to do the hard work. They're lazy. It's not what I see. I see that people want to contribute fully and in big ways, and when they can't, when they run into bad bosses or toxic cultures or people who have limiting views of them, it actually is fairly painful. It hurts. It hurts for people to not contribute to their full potential. So I remind myself when I see someone who's under-contributing, this is not the scenario that they want. They've just ended up here. Um, And then I try to help them see where maybe they're working hard but not making an impact. Like they're using a lot of force. Like maybe they're shooting at the wrong target or maybe um, they're under contributing because they're in the wrong role or the wrong environment or they're working with a diminishing leader. But I always start with the assumption that people want to contribute fully. They wanna play big. They wanna do work that matters. Yeah, No one really wants to be a position holder. They want to be a difference maker.
1: Yeah, and because they want to feel proud at the end of the day about what they've done, no matter what level in the organization they're in. Uh, What is the difference between an impactful player and just a player? And you talk about that in the book.
0: Mm -hmm. So the the essence of the research I did um, was to go into nine different companies and interview 170 managers. And I had a team of uh, five people worked with me on this. And we asked each manager to identify two different types of contributors on their team. So two people, one of whom, now well, let's start with the both of whom, both of whom were smart, talented, and hardworking. But one of them was getting the job done and maybe done well, making it a contribution. The other was making an enormous impact. And so what I was trying to understand is what's different between the people, the smart, capable, hardworking people who are doing their job, sort of turning the crank versus those that are doing work of extraordinary value and influence. So that first group is uh, a group we called contributors, typical contributors. And the important thing is that they were rock solid contributors. And their bosses said things about them like, hmm, they do their job well. They're brilliant. They you know, they take direction, they take ownership, they are responsible, they, you know, they are focused and they, they carry their weight on teams. Like they're good team players. But their way of thinking was stellar in ordinary times, but in times of um, uncertainty and ambiguity, their way their way of working fell short. And that was where the impact players—these people who were not working any harder, not necessarily any smarter or more capable, but were having a huge impact—they thought and they worked in very different ways. And that's really what I was trying to uncover, which is what is what is that mindset?
1: And is that because they're wired a certain way, and other people are
0: not? Well, I think it is that they're wired a certain way, and whether that, like, and cannot be taught. Yeah. So, okay. That's the big question. Like they were definitely wired a different way. The question is, did they kind of drop onto earth that way? Right. Did they enter their job that way? But somewhere along the way they got that, like for me, let me, let me give you an example with me is, you know, I don't think I was raised in any particularly special way, but early on in my career, I you know, I got, I got a few like bricks to the head. And one of those moments came at Oracle where I was interviewing for this job and I was trying to get this job with the internal training group. I wanted to teach management. And I, specifically, I wanted to build a management boot camp for Oracle, but all they were doing was technical training at the time. I'm interviewing with the VP of the group. I answer his questions and I make my case for why Oracle needs a management boot camp, And I because I sort of love this, have a passion for this. I I would love to help build this. I was probably 20, probably 25 at the time, 24, maybe even 24 at the time. And this VP, a man named Bob Shaver, he said to me, he's like, Liz, that's great. We think you're great, but your boss has a different problem. She's got to figure out not how to get a bunch of managers up to speed on how to be good managers. She's got to get a lot of young, technologist, up to speed in Oracle technology. And what would be great is if you could help her do that. And, you know, it's funny. It's why I named that chapter, Make Yourself Useful, because what Bob said to me was polite. But what I heard, the subtext in his words were, Liz, look around you. See what needs to be done. See what's important. And then try to make yourself useful. And I was, I came into this with this orientation of, well, here's what I wanted to do. This is what I'm passionate about. But he was pointing me towards, here's what's important. And I'm like, oh, if I want to do valuable work, I should probably work on what's valuable. And this, this thing he was telling me about is what's valuable. And that's not what I wanted to do, but I'm like, you know what? If that's what needs to be done and that's what people care about, I'm going to work and what people care about rather than what I care about. And it just opened up opportunity after opportunity after opportunity because I was willing to do that. So I don't know that I was like born with that kind of headset, but somebody gently or maybe even not so gently kind of helped me see that. Well, I think and it's it a- part of my DNA, how I work. I think entrepreneurs often don't
1: follow that. And they don't uh, think about what the client actually needs, but they think what the client wants. And of course, we saw Steve Jobs saying, hey, the client never knew he needed an iPad or some of the things he created. So we go and create them uh, for them and then tell them why they need them or how they would make them uh, interesting. But I think most entrepreneurs fail because they don't follow that dictum. That said, why do you think a fifth round draft pick like Tom Brady, who was the 200th player in the draft, turned into the greatest player in the history of the game? Because, you know, all these brilliant people and all the metrics they use and all the psychologists, everything, Tom Brady was not considered high uh, high potential kind of player. And I'm sure you have those in your organization. So what type of mindset and leadership skills do you think? he has developed and how could someone replicate that?
0: Mm. Well, you know, I am not an expert on Tom Brady. Um, So I imagine that Mark, you know more about his path than I do, but from what I can see, there's, there's an intentionality there and a discipline and an orientation that develops talent and develops focus. And, you know, that's probably the secret to his game and probably this opportunity to be around some of the most amazing coaches in the world and to refine that. Um, So I don't know, tell me, what do you see in Tom Brady's path that has allowed him to make this kind of come from behind kind of contribution across a storied career?
1: I mean, I I think in his case, he was undervalued going in and there were other many other quarterbacks taken before him, And I think he had a great degree of self-confidence and high level of intelligence. And when you put those two things together in his own um, burning desire to be the best, that changed everything. You know, it's like what you always say about people, people with a high degree of confidence who are not delusional, but have a high degree of confidence, they find how to get over every obstacle. There are people who have great skill set, but lack confidence. And as soon as the roadblocks come up, they fall apart. Here is somebody who had great mental toughness and that's why he's so successful. I read a book on Larry Ellison and even his first wife thought he'd never amount to anything. So many people way underestimated what his potential could be. And mm-hmm. when you read that biography, you realize that, you know, he had a, a course, he stayed on it. He kept pushing forward and not letting people get into his head that he couldn't be What he eventually became. I mean, Mm -hmm. he never would have guessed he'd be like this, but I think that's what what happens with great uh, impact players is that they have a great degree of confidence in themselves, born out of the fact that they're willing to do whatever it takes and they'll maximize their potential, whether it would have been one Super Bowl win or seven Super Bowl wins. It didn't matter to Tom Brady.
0: Yeah, interesting. Well, you know, what you said reminds me of two things. One about Larry and you know i was at oracle for 17 years and larry was a fascinating leader to watch and one of the things i noticed about him is that he was always 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 at his best when his back was against the ropes like when we were like a leader in a market segment like he would get a little sloppy i don't know if lazy is the right word but but when like we had a product with problems or we were an underdog in the apps market, like, and, and, and there was criticism, like, boom, it like ignited something in him, which is, I will show you. I will show you. He was always like, when you look at when Larry was on fire, it was always that come from behind underdog scenario. The other thing it makes me think about is you mentioned confidence and there's a certain sweet spot with confidence. Like, What I find is that people tend to do their best work um, when people have high degrees of self-confidence, but low degrees of situational confidence. Here's what I mean by that. Self-confidence is like, you know what? I'm, I'm smart. I'm capable. I'm in control of myself. Like I have a strong internal locus of control, as a psychologist would say. I have a strong sense of like personal agency. But I have low situational confidence, meaning I've never been in this situation before. I've never quarterbacked this team. I've never, you know, come out of retirement. I've I've never done this thing. And so I don't know how to do this thing. So when I'm a capable person meets I've never done this thing before and I don't know how, boom, like amazing things happen. There's a book I wrote called Rookie Smarts. Which is kind of about how we tend to do our best thinking and our best work when we're new to something important and hard. But again, self you want people with high self-confidence, but you also want people who understand when they're in a situation where they don't have experience or wisdom and for like the learning, you know, um, switch to, to turn on. In the beginning
1: of the book, you told the story of Monica Padman was Dax mm. Shepard's co-host on one of the most successful podcasts, Armchair Expert. Could you briefly tell Monica's story and what we can learn from it?
0: Oh, I love Monica's story. So she comes <laughs> to college. She's a theater you know, major. She wants to be a comedian. She wants to be an actress. So she, you know, kind of a little bit against her parents' aspirations for her. She moves to Los Angeles, tries to make it. As an actor, she's going down that very typical path, probably like working odd jobs, trying to get roles. She gets a small role in, oh, why am I? I think it's, is it The Good Place? House of Lies. I'm now forgetting the show, but she plays um, uh, Kristen Bell's on screen assistant. So she meets Kristen Bell. They become kind of acquaintances. She runs into her at a party. And she mentions to her that, to Kristen, that she, you know, does babysitting on the side. Well, Kristen takes her up on that and she's like, starts babysitting for her. Now, just imagine how you are babysitting, you were an aspiring actress and you were babysitting for, you know, Kristen Bell and Dax Shepard's young children. Like this is an incredible opportunity. And what most people probably would have done would be like, hey, actually I'm, you know, would love to... Have you helped me get some roles? Like she already, she's already um, worked as her on-screen assistant. She's worked alongside Kristen. It's not what she does. She babysits for them, and then as she's helping them around the house, she realizes, oh, you know what? Kristen's like got all these um, like screenplays piling up, and all these projects. Like maybe I could help her with her schedule. Maybe I can help read some of these scripts. And she just kept offering to help Kristen with what Kristen needs help with, rather than ask for acting jobs. And in that process, she becomes, you know, in a really vital role with the family. She's sitting around the house, out on the porch, kind of just talking, chopping it up, you know, arguing with Back Shepard. And he's like, hey, we should, we're good at arguing together. We, we should turn this into a podcast. And she's like, I'd love to do it. And so she now is out there doing something she loves having a lot of success at it, but it came from making herself useful rather than sort of like pushing her agenda.
1: I thought it was a great story. You wrote that impact players hit problems head on and when they don't, bad things happen, such Mm -hmm. as the New Jersey Giants uh, receiver trying to go around a problem instead of hitting it head on. And because of that, it cost the team the game. Why are people afraid to confront problems directly and if you're afraid to do it, how do you change that type of behavior?
0: Mm. Well, this is you know a story I heard Eric Bowles tell about running around the wedge. So his job on special teams after the kickoff was to go and try to like run into this like human wall of defenders um, and to sort of break this up. And in a misguided moment, he instead of going into these like massive players, he decides to like kind of run around them and tackle them from behind. He ends up making the tackle, but it costs them critical yardage that ends up losing the game for them. And I use this example because like some of these problems that impact players handle very differently than ordinary contributors, these are problems that hurt. These are challenging things. They're things that we want to avoid. and, you know, we think we can kind of like hide it, um, you know, when we're, these problems and we're afraid to confront them, we think we can hide them just like Eric thought he could run around the wedge and make the tackle. But later the team is replaying the footage and they're like, I'd like everyone to take a look at this, like act of cowardice. And, you know, we think we can hide when we make mistakes. But, but the truth is most of our mistakes, the people around us see. And they know about, and we may be successful in that people don't talk about it in a meeting, but people know, like, I think if I could like stand on a rooftop and just shout something to, to people who particularly who are new to the workforce, or maybe struggling mid career, it's like, when you are making mistakes, the people you think aren't noticing are, they notice your boss knows about it. And there's the slow, painful way to do that, which is to avoid the the discussion to sort of hide it to try to hide your own sense of shame of a mistake you made but the better way to do it is 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 to acknowledge it just like in a movie you know how when we're watching a movie and you see like these characters and they've made a mistake and you're like just tell him you did this (laughs) tell him this is not gonna go well if you don't tell him how many movies have we watched that scene yeah tell them, admit it, just tell them. And you know what, this is going to be just fine. And they don't do it. And you're like, this is going to come back to bite you. And everyone in the theater can see that this is going to play out this way. It's the same way in the workplace. It's like, you know what, think of yourself like in that mid movie, that critical moment, just tell people like what actually bosses uh, for this book, part of the research we did is we asked managers, what is it that people do that you just hate? And what is it that people do that you love, that makes your job as a leader easy, delightful, wonderful? And so many of those behaviors that managers love are learning behaviors like, I just want people to admit that they've made a mistake so we can talk about it. And I want to see that they've learned from it. Actually, when we admit our mistakes, our credibility goes up, not down. Because everyone already knows about it and they're wondering Do you know about that? Do you know that you just screwed that meeting up or wrecked that, you know, that client meeting? We know that, but do you know it? And people start to wonder about your competence, about your self-awareness. But when we admit it and fix it fast, um, you know, we get this kind of like triple bonus. Like we get the, the bonus that comes from like repairing something that was broken and people appreciate it. We get this integrity bonus of, wow, look at that person owning up to that and fixing it. And then we get the learning bonus of like, okay, well, I can't keep repeating that mistake. So it's actually the fast path to impact.
1: Well, I think it also depends on the boss that you trust him, him or her, that you can be honest with them about the mistake and you won't get your head lopped off. I think that's what employees often are afraid of is that they would probably admit to the mistake if they knew they could trust their boss or the boss has to show that they can be trusted with the mistake, right?
0: I I think so. And the boss plays a huge role in this, but let's assume you've got an irrational and unreasonable boss. I still think this is an art form that you can master. And even in some of the most difficult bosses to admit a mistake and to demonstrate that you see it, you can fix it. And so I, I actually think, um, it is almost always the better path, even with someone kind of unreasonable. You
1: had, uh, This was interesting, I thought. Uh, you wrote, people who stay in their own lane often think that is what is expected, but they miss out on opportunities. Can you explain this?
0: Yeah, because most of the work in complex organizations and in fast-moving environments, most of the important work doesn't fall neatly into one person's job. And in some ways, if you're doing your job, you're handling yesterday's priorities. You know, most of the work is out in no man's land. It's like outside of these comfortable swim lanes. Um, You know, it's like you could be so busy doing your job that you don't see the real job that needs to be done. And the impact players don't just do their job. They do the job that's needed. So having impact means having just a little bit of healthy disregard for one's job description. It's it's not that I'm going to ignore my job description, that our job descriptions become more like um, a base camp, a base camp like on Everest, which is it's kind of where you kind of hang out, and your supplies are, it's like maybe we spend your time so that when you need to like go make a rescue up mountain, you're in the right position. But it's not a restriction or a limitation. It's a station that we move from and then go back to.
1: You're you're right. How do you, and and I thought this uh, was fascinating, how do you uh, under-contribute by over-contributing and how do you know when you are doing that that you recognize that uh, and people are working for you? So they're Mm -hmm. under-contributing by over-contributing.
0: Yeah, you know, that was one of the things that was so interesting in the research is how many managers say, man, I've got some people on my team who are smart and capable and hardworking who are missing the mark. And how many people are missing the mark while trying to make a big impact? And I think there's a couple ways we do this. One is we're overworking. Like we're working so hard, so diligently on something like got to do this, got to get it done, got to do my part that you don't realize that the real value to be created is if you just look up and you see, wow, here's where there's something I should be doing. Like we're, we're too hard or we become um, so diligently trying to finish something that we don't realize it's no longer relevant. We need to let go of it and move to work on something that's more relevant. We can under contribute value by overworking, being overly rotated on that. The other way we can do it is to be over eager. Which is like, hey, I want to do important work. I want to have a successful career. I want to have value. I want to be influential and impactful. And we self-obsess rather than serve our stakeholders and our clients. It's almost like, hey, boss, how am I doing? Am I doing great? Tell me I'm doing a great job. And then it's like, oh, my gosh, I just need this person to, to leave me alone. Or, man, I want to do this thing I'm passionate about. No, Liz, actually, your boss has a different problem. You know can you help her solve her problem? I'm like, oh, but that's not what I wanted to do. See, I was over-eager rather than, than watching for heat. See, impact players are like they're heat seeking, which is where are their hot spots in the organization? Where are there places where I can create value if I'm just paying it? It's like they have an infrared view of the market. Of the organization of their clients, I'm going to look for heat, and I'm going to go work where there's heat.
1: One um, did uh, when one uh, did Neil deGrasse mentioned uh, he writes, oh, "What you know is not as important as how you think." What's he talking about there, and how does that apply? Uh, mm-hmm. imp- apply to impact
0: players. Well, I think it's about not just. What we do, it's how we think about what we do. And in and, and so many ways in this book, I'm trying to under, uncover what is the mental game of the most influential people inside of organizations or inside the world. How do they think about things differently? It's our mindsets that are so powerful. And, you know, to, um, to this quote, it's like, it's not what you know, it's how you think is so much of what we know today is not going to be relevant tomorrow, so to speak. Um, there's a little bit of research I did when you add up. So, if you work in any kind of industry that's STEM related, science, technology, engineering, math, or any industry in heavily influenced by technology, that when you add up um, just the amount of sheer knowledge that's being created in those industries and then how quickly information and knowledge becomes irrelevant, becomes obsolete. What we know today, there's only about 15% of what we know today is likely to be relevant in five years. That's not 50 as in half, it's one five. So between 10 and 20% of what we know today is going to be relevant in five years. So instead of clinging to knowledge, the most impactful people are building a learning discipline a learning gene a way of thinking about work a mental game that is evergreen i think that and i think that's scary to people
1: how things are rapidly changing that your knowledge has to be constantly replenished all the time
0: i think it's terrifying i think it terrifies a lot of us like because no one really likes this idea that someone might Look at them and either say it or just think it, which is, it's kind of like a Simon Cowell moment on American Idol. It's like, you're just not relevant. Yeah, you know.
1: Go ahead. Please. So the organizations you work with are mostly household names based on, I was looking at your website. What did you learn about their cultures that attracted and cultivated impact players?
0: Mm. You know, some of these organizations, some of the ones we uh, use in the study, oh, Google, LinkedIn, Target, Stanford Health, NASA, um, Salesforce, SAP, Adobe. um, They're not just great recruiters of talent. See, a lot of organizations hire smart people, but then they let them languish and people end up under contributing and they build this culture of sort of mediocrity. People quit and stay inside these organizations. These companies, they don't just acquire talent, they're actively developing talent for lots of reasons. One is to be able to do today's job well, a performance mentality. The other is a relevance thing, which is we have to build this learning culture to be relevant in five years. The other is a retention thing, which is people stay where they're growing, you know, not just where they're contributing, but where they're growing. Um, so that what was common across so many of the companies that are steady and so many of the companies I get to work with is that they value the development of talent, not just the acquisition. And they value the role that leaders play. Like, oh, you're not just a box on an org chart and a necessary evil, which is, we actually believe that talent goes underutilized without active development. And that is fundamentally that your like a raison d'etre of leadership.
1: How do you get people? Uh, oh, let me ask you this. Can you explain the concept of upward awareness?
0: Mm. Yeah, uh, upward awareness and empathy. And so, um, you know, for years I was been teaching managers how to be like empathetic to what's happening around them, see other people's capabilities, see other people's underutilization and help people be fully utilized. But what I realized is these impact players, they are empathetic. We often think of empathy as something that happens like out and down, like we're empathetic to those who are struggling, maybe those um, that are hurting or suffering. But And let's go with this idea of suffering. We often think of like the people who are suffering are people that we should have empathy for. And when we look up at our bosses and our clients, we don't often think of those as people who are suffering. We think of those people, sometimes people who inflict suffering, like, oh, my boss is making me do this. She's got me working the weekends. Oh, he's like, you know, intolerant. He's an ogre. Upward awareness is looking upward at our bosses, our clients, the business owner, the those that we work with and for and saying, what's going on in your world? Like what's your perspective on things? What are you trying to accomplish that you're not able to accomplish? What's hard for you? What's causing your job to be difficult and is it perhaps possible that what's causing your job to be difficult is me? Like how do I make your life easier how do i make how do i help you achieve what you want to achieve it's having empathy upwards and it does this amazing things when we can empathize with those above us like we get ourselves on the same agenda and when we're working on the same agenda with our client our boss like magic happens
1: you not just for the, the boss Bible. it's not just
0: about Yeah, we become more valuable. And it's not just serving like, oh, I'm going to like cater to the boss's whims. It's we are now working together on what's most important. Yeah, sure, the boss, the owner gets something, but the contributor gets rewarded in, in a plethora of
1: ways. Here's my last question for you. How much responsibility does the leader have in sharing the big picture and providing context and how the employees fit into the long-term plan, and what if they don't share it, and how can employees provide value if they're not sharing it?
0: Mm, This is one of the things I wish I could stand on the rooftops and, and scream out to managers, which is if you want people to work on what's important, and if you want people on your team to be smart and to use their full intelligence, like you've got to give them context because without context, without why, it's hard for people to make intelligent decisions. It's like the raw ingredients of intelligence. And I think Simon Sinek really captured this well in his book, Start with Why. Like don't tell people what to do. Tell them like what needs to happen and why, and let them figure out what to do about it.
1: Liz, you're fantastic. And I have to say, I was lucky like you working for brilliant people and what you learned from them and nothing like working for people like that to open your mind to all the possibilities. So uh, I'm hoping that you'll send us the next book. We'll have you back again to talk about your next book. Are you working on another one now?
0: No, I'm not actively working on another book, but we'll start with a few big research projects. So we've got a few ideas in the works. Well, hope to have you back again.
1: Thanks for taking the time to speak with us and hope everyone enjoys their weekend. Stay safe. Thank you, Mark. Take care. Thanks again.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in
1: every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and
0: Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.